Hello, just a little note to point out that this episode contains some light, humorous swearing. And so if that kind of uh, playful vulgarity offends you, please don't listen. Hello, I'm Andrew Mayle, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club, a place where music lovers, musicians, crate diggers, writers, readers, and special guests get to share their love for classic albums, weird lost gems, and brand new revelations. My guests today are Mojo editor John Mulvey and Mick Head. Hello, gang. Hi, Andrew. Hello. How are you doing? Very good. I can't see it. I'm going to get my glasses so I can see it. Okay. (laughs) Right. Now, it's fair to say that Mick is one of the UK's greatest living songwriters. He's been making music for just over 40 years, first in 80s Scouts, Baroque Pop, Romantics, The Pale Fountains, on and off down the years as Shaq and The Strands, and most recently as Michael Head and the Red Elastic Band, whose current LP, Dear Scott, was last month voted as Mojo's album of 2022. Before we start, let's listen to a track from Dear Scott, an utterly gorgeous high point, a song suffused in West Coast melancholy and forever edging into the territory of the short story. This is Fluke, produced by Bill Ryder-Jones, song and lyrics by Michael Head and the Red Elastic Band from Dear Scott on the Modern Sky UK label. I say goodbye to the driver too he looks a little bit like me, Auntie Faye <laughs> But she's 10,000 miles Mick, welcome. It's really lovely to have you here. And I want to start by talking a little bit about Dear Scott. How did it feel um, making Mojo's album of the year? Amazing, you know, just a recognition for something that, and as people tell me, you know, that's fucking big, that Mick, you know what I mean? And I'm going, <laughs> no, you know, tell me about it. Um, you know, to just everybody who was involved, and I know I've said it before in an interview, but when you look back on it, and you, you you pick up on um uh you know what the the work Alice did you know backstage uh, the actual um record itself Bill's input and the, the lads from the record label but the lads in the band as well you know not just playing the talent but as young men yes you know, really massive input in, into the um, into it so to get like you know um. Recognition for that is, 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 it's massive, you know, it's um, soul cleansing, you know what I mean? Soul cleansing. Yeah. That's big. Yeah, (laughs) you know what I mean? It's, it's, um, it is, it's, um, gives you a little bit of faith. Yeah. You know, that, you know, sometimes when you're playing live at a gig, it's like us and the, the audience, it's a, in that room for that time, out there, doesn't really matter. You know, obviously, when the lights go on and we all go outside, it does. But, um, yeah, the, I think the album itself is, is um, encapsulated a lot of beauty, emotions, different emotions. And so, yet, that recognition from yourselves and is it, for us, it's massive. A friend of mine caught your Liverpool homecoming gig recently and said that that was one of the most special evenings he's ever been to in terms of, like, you know, kind of the mood in a room. It was beautiful, mate. Absolutely beautiful. And, you know, just what I've been saying then, we did, we did the album, we did the gigs. Now, you know, people were saying to me early doors, how are you doing, how are you how are you for the gigs, you know? With, you know, with your form, check at this, you know, and I'm like, I'm, I'm surrounded by beautiful, positive, always have been, by the way. But um, yeah, maybe it's uh, the older you get more, you, you get a bit more, you're open to seeing a lot more. Do you feel that it's, um, I mean, I think 
without belittling the importance of Mojo at this point, it's been it's been a quite a big commercial success for you, hasn't it? Relative to what's happened before. Yeah, you know, it's um, this is the highest position as yeah. a band we've ever been in. Yeah. I've ever been in Haley's Shah, um, and again, you know, I think the music itself with this album went right across the board. In a way, people, I can only talk personally, but, you know, obviously the lads in the band, they're off my age. You know, their mums and dads, cousins, uncles, were, were um, getting them into, into us. Um, but this one's gone right across the board, you know. Um, and so I think that's helped it, you know, go get it better. Do you ever think, do, do you ever stop and wonder why it's happened with this one? Because, you know, you've made a lot of great records. What's 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 been the special kind of source this time? Um, I don't know. I've thought about it a little bit when I've thought mindset, personal mindset for me personally. Um, I know a bit of lucidity, clarity in the big picture, you know, um, giving the songs the respect, 100% respect that they've always deserved. I'm not saying that it didn't do in the past. You do that subconsciously. Sometimes consciously, I've not given them the 100% respect they've deserved, if that makes any sense. Um, so I think people have responded and appreciated that. I don't know, you, you, you'd know, you know. But the, um, I mean, I think, I mean, I've been going back into your music for the podcast and there is that, I'm impressed by the consistency of vision. And I wonder whether it's to do, I mean, do you have like an ideal, like a sonic goal, a gold standard of sound that you're always working towards? Uh, no, um, not really. No, no. Thank you, man. Thank you, mate. Um, never premeditated anything, really. Uh, Writing-wise, I don't have set times or, or okay, there's, there are times when I think, okay, you've got to write a couple to finish this album and that's mm. fine. I can, you know, and then I, that's kind of like, I think, okay. But most of the songs... Because whether, whether you kind of have like a, you know, kind of a, a goal that you're working towards in terms of like kind of, you know, it's it's an ideal of, like, you know, what is, oh, what is a great Mick Head song and kind of like, you know, yeah, you've no. got to be up to that standard. No, say like on Dear Scott, they were just kind of, you know, the, the, the first, say, half a dozen have been written and then then uh, the second half, um, necessity, you know, to, to keep focused, creative, um, and finish the album. So I had a, a goal. Yeah. Um, but musically, um, as people have said, you know, um, I think the songs, you know, I, the next day was one of the first songs written on the album. But in essence, the the, the essence of the album uh, centres around fluke in a way. Yeah. But then they all branch out from the beauty of fluke in different ways. The next day, um, Gino and Rico. Um, so 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 musically, no, I think that was down to the likes of Bill and Nat, who yeah. played a massive part. Absolutely. The sound, you know, he was a, a system bill, but also obviously an integral part of the Red Elastic Band. So it's their vision as well as much as mine when they get into the studio. Uh, you know, when Phil's happy with his drums, his sound, what he, but his job, you know, his drum, you know, and Tom's the same with his bass. Everyone, they're all so proficient and talented that they, they bring the vision. We all we all bring it ultimately subconsciously, I suppose, you know, without any conscious idea of let's go here. Maybe when I was younger, you know, I'd say, you know, um, you know, for example, jokingly, I'd John, I'd say, don't play him fucking that, you know what I mean? Or, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or it'd be like, you know, we'd have half a dozen Kinks-inspired songs. That's just me. I'm a sponge. Yeah. You know, um, I get inspired influenced, you know, things they don't, you know, people bandy words on plagiarism. Picasso nailed it when he said, don't call me a plagiarist, I'm a thief. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, 
So I think, but he is also basically saying as well, I'm inspired by the by these people, you know, and, and so you should be happy. You're listening to the Mojo Record Club. This is Mickhead from the Red Elastic Band. It's a, a perfect lead-in to one of your like key points of inspiration, a Constance, which is the album that you've brought in to talk about today, which is Forever Changes, the yeah. third studio album by the LA group Love, released on Electra Records in November 1967. And I think it's fair to say an evergreen Mick Head reference point. Since the earliest interviews with the Paleys, would that be fair? Does it go back that far? Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, I was saying to Tom before, you know, um, I haven't played it for a while, and um, but you know, it's I, I luckily got I, I've been being in a band and gr- growing up in a band. You know, you never I never got to uh, say, for example, um, Revolver or Rubber Soul. It was like the two tapes when they were in the flats, 65 to something, and then when they got long air in the same block of flats with the Beatles and then the Beach Boys' greatest hits, which is a great shortcut into, you know, if you're a songwriter and if you're, if you're on the road in the back of a van. But with love, I, I got um, revisited, which was a compilation of Forever Changes to Capo and the first, Love, the first album. And people kept going on about this mythical forever changes, and I was happy with revisited. I mean, John, what year? Would, what year would that have been, Mick? What year was that? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, when I met Yorkie, um, Yorkie had the luxury of being brainwashed by Julian Cope. Where <laughs> um, they were rehearsing, the teardrops and the bunny men were rehearsing in Julian's cellar, so. So just to clarify, Yorkie is uh, Dave Palmer, um, legendary Liverpool figure, uh, member of the band Space, but also um, started his music career as a member of the post-punk band uh, The Dance Party alongside Mick Head. There was a record player in the cellar. And uh, so I think Julian, and upstairs, there was record players everywhere. So Julian used to play Yorkie, all kinds, you know, right across the board, and then subsequently Yorkie would play me. So, you know, I'd been, I'd just been watching things like So It Goes, Revolver, not the whistle test really, Top of the Pops even, you know. So Buzzcocks, Banshees, you know, um, television, things like that. When he started playing me things like the pop group, Pierubu, you know, and then Love, which I, I said, just leave it there. Fuck everything else for you. <laughs> Just leave that on, um, and let me take it home. So tape it for me, and he let me get, let me take the record on, which I was fucking delighted. Um, so that'd have been nineteen seventy nine. Yeah. Um, and me and our John used to share a room. We used to play albums and give them marks out of ten. No, uh, not when they come close to ten. I just come home one night with this album and said, this is a fucking game changer, mate, you know? And uh, we put it on. And we wouldn't tell each other the score. So if we play something the week before, like Roxy Music or something, or, or 10CC even, you know, we'd be like, put the scores in, I'd read this. A to you. <laughs> you know what I mean? You'd hide the data or whatever. But love, we both went like that. Fucking hell, isn't it 10? 10 out of fucking 10, isn't it? Because um, it just blew us away. Yeah, so, yeah, from day one it's been... And I think it's one of them albums, isn't it? I don't know about you. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and the older I get now, I'm 61. I, I keep, keep versions of what 60, but 60's got a lovely little ring to it. <laughs> <laughs> I might, yeah. But um, it's, it's there now forever. Um what do you, I mean, what do you, it's really hard to put you on the spot like this, but what do you think it is? Because it's an album that is kind of inexhaustible, isn't it? You can yeah. keep going back to it. Yeah. And what, what do you think are its kind of unique qualities? Oh, man. It's, it's lyrics. Um, it's delivery. It's whole. Um, it, well, the, the structure of the songs. 
um, he's got he's there's like a some would say a psychedelic West Coast quintessential Englishness about it, um, and he's from Memphis, I think, um, or LA. Um, you know, harpsichords. Uh, you know, obviously they must have been inspired by. You know what was going on in English? Maybe the zombies and things like that. I don't know how if they were early doors. I'm not. You know, the lads in the band and other other people are really more. You know, on the money when it comes to the history of things like that. But just the structure of the songs, the God, the the beauty of them, the orchestration, and the allowance of somebody like David Angel was it or other people to. Um, to explore, like I always just say to the lads in the band, you know, it, the early doors when it, we were a three three piece, it was freedom and expression, you know. Um, so I have gaps in songs. It's like in Gene Rico, Bill said, I'm having that fucking gap with the solo, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, um, and filled it fucking, you know, beautifully. Um, so yeah, I think he, 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 uh, as a songwriter, oh man, second to none for me. You know, has, sorry, John, go on. Yeah, I think there's um, one of the things that I really like about records sometimes, and I think it's pertinent to Forever Changes, is that there's a sense that something is really ornate and composed and thought through, but is somehow at the same time really kind of quite wild and free and emotional and unfettered. And to be able to do the two things simultaneously is, well, I'm not a musician, but it always strikes me as being extraordinarily hard. Hang on, yeah. uh, me, me dog's um, having, having a moment. Hang on a second. Yeah, yeah. Or a fluke, John, you know what I mean? It could be yeah. with more their personalities. You know, that's why it's, it's, it's even better in a way. Yeah. You know, you've got this beautiful work of art, let's call it, you know, piece of body of work, of work of art. Um, you've got their personalities, but this together, fused together, had brought this beauty, you know. So I don't think the prob maybe there was some premeditation there, but, you know, there's a lot of, as you say, freedom and expression there as well. And he allows that, Arthur, with his writing. It's... um. um- Almost semi-mythic Liverpool album in a way. And you mentioned kind of Julian Cope's kind of obsession with it, but there's obviously also that story about Jeff Davis at Probe Records kind of making it it, almost his campaign that everybody who went into the shop would come out with a copy of Forever Changes. And it kind of, yeah. And so, I mean, there's something, I mean, there is something quintessentially Liverpool about it as well, isn't there, Mick? Yeah, definitely. Maybe it's, like that's he left that mark. I didn't know he played in 1970. Yes, yeah. I think that's I think that's it. And I think Jeff Davis saw him. Yeah. And I think kind of that there was that kind of established almost kind of that's the start of the myth and the relationship between love and Liverpool. Well, I think they, you know, it was like they kind of adopted adopted them in a way. And if that's the case, it makes a lot of sense because. We always used to talk to each other, thinking like, "Why, why is forever changes?" A lot of the, we used to call them old hippies, but a lot of the wise old men of the city, <laughs> <laughs> they had forever changes, um, and we were thinking maybe it just got left behind when they came in 1970. But that makes a lot of sense with Jeff, you know. I didn't know that, so if he was on a bit of a quest. You know, it does. Uh, it does make sense, and it, it, it's it's typical Jeff as well, um, and typical Probe. But I think kind of a match made in heaven as well. Um, the 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 music. You know, Arthur said to me when he came at the soundcheck when he came to Liverpool, Michael, it's good to be home. We were all going okay. <laughs> but he, I think he meant it in a way of his second home you know yeah. when he came here he left a mark and you know he, he basically we adopted him as well 
I think the I same wanna... beef art. Yes. It's like in, in Liverpool, there's a, a lot of people bang into love and beef art. But you'll have a lot of people who are beef art and love in a way. Because obviously Beef Art had a art exhibition at the Blue Coat as well, didn't he? He's kind of he showed his art there as well. So there, that kind of who did the, Beef Art? Did he? Oh, I didn't know. Yeah, that. I was in the in the eight in the eighties. He basically kind of chose Liverpool as one of the places to put on a art exhibition. That's amazing. I didn't know that. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about your playing and meeting Arthur, but um, we should probably play a little bit from the album Forever Changes, the third studio album by the LA group Love, released on Electra Records in November 1967. We're going to choose, I think, what I would guess is one of Mick's favourite tracks from the album, second track, side one, the enigmatic, soaring, haunting, A House Is Not A Motel, written by Arthur Lee, and a song which arguably contains the finest guitar solo ever committed <laughs> to record. <laughs> Your group, Shaq, to sort of explain that you were kind of saying how that you kind of knew and met and played with Arthur. Your group, Shaq, were Arthur Lee's backing band first in, I think, yeah. in 1992. How did that come about? Um, so, say, for example, as before, mobile phones. Um, and Stefan, who... Um, Stefan Bismuth. Stefan Bismuth, who funded the Strands album. Um, said to said to me, you know, um, Arthur Lee's coming to do some gigs. Um, he's look as as manager for me up. He's looking for a backing band um, to be love. And I was going, yeah, we're listening. <laughs> and he says, and there was a red telephone box, ironically, <laughs> <laughs> on Catherine Street in Liverpool. It was the only one uh, for, for for a while. I was living in in the area at the time. Um, he gave me his number. He was in LA. He said, you phone him up. He's really interested. I'm going, okay. Got me quids together. Phoned him up. He said, you know, hi. I said, hi. Uh, he said, I'm, I'm Arthur's manager. We're coming to Paris, Liverpool and London. Do you, would you, do you know any of Love's songs? I said, yeah. He said, which ones, you know? I said, we know all of them. He said, no, I'm serious. Which ones, you know? And I said, well, you tell me which ones you don't want us to do. <laughs> <laughs> and if that makes it easier. And um, and he went, okay. Kind of with a, okay, smart ass kind of point. And I thought, you know, it, when we get together, we, we, we'll work it out. But I said, whatever ones you want to do, whatever ones Arthur wants to do, we, we, we'll sort them. I said, ah, oh, John's the don. You can, you know, you know, that's that. Yeah, John can do the castle if that's any good. <laughs> you know what I mean? so, <laughs> which shut him up. <laughs> so, uh, so then that was that, and then the first one was in Paris. Um, so we got to Paris. We were supposed to meet Arthur in in the afternoon in a cafe below the hotel. Now I was in bed, big click on the door. I thought it was the chambermaid. Opens the door, it's Arthur. Michael, fucking Arthur. You know, and that was it, you know. I said, he goes, I'll wait in the cafe downstairs. So we were getting dressed. Um, goes downstairs and just, you know, and as you probably guess, knowing about him, just a beautiful, humble, beautiful man, just listening to us, not being in awe of him, but being in awe of him, in awe of the fact that we were just sitting having a coffee or a beer, and he was listening to us, talking about what songs. We, we were asking him kind of, what, what were you thinking? 
you know, we said to him, we want to do your mind and we belong together because we were doing it in the set. He said, you don't know it. We said, we do. <laughs> um, and we just got to, and you know, testament to Arthur. When we got into the sound check, he said, I haven't played that for fucking, it must have been 30 odd years for if longer. Because he did say, and it's been documented, he said, fucking love didn't know that. You know, because, <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, we do. And we love it. It's one. Of, it's my favorite. One of my yeah. favorite love songs. So appropriate as well, because your mind and we do belong together. And so we did it, and and then we did several others. But in testament to Arthur, we got on stage, did it? It all come flooding back. Yeah. I'd like to understand just why. Just kicked in. Fantastic. And then back to your question, mate. Just that's how that happened. Yeah. Just yeah. Simple as really. A phone call. And uh, yeah. Letting them know that we, we were the ones we should, it should be us. <laughs> it's a it's amazing that he came and fetched you because I must say that some of the stories that I heard about Arthur Lee in the nineties, that his timekeeping was not always uh, fantastic. I remember um, a friend of mine was promoting one of his shows in London, and and he basically disappeared at, at gig time, and he, and he had to go down the Holloway Road into all the pubs and eventually found Arthur playing pool in an <laughs> Irish pub further down yeah. the road and had sort of, you know, frog marching back to the venue yeah. to get him on stage. Yeah. Well, halfway to, no, before the gig? or uh, At the time of the gig, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's a... Um, yeah, that, that time probably wasn't um, up there on as it. But, you know, I, I think he probably wasn't being... No, uh, no malice yeah, that yeah. I found in in his in his nature. Not 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 any malice. Not like fuck that or fuck them or fuck you. I don't think that was in his nature. Kind of a did. I mean, yeah. did working with Arthur did it kind of change your opinion of Forever Changes in terms of like how it was created? Did you get any insights? Because I suppose the thing is like when you listen to that record, it's very hard to kind of imagine that it was you know. I don't want to overstate the case. It's very hard to imagine it was actually created by, you know, real human beings that sit in front of you. So when you actually met the individual, you know, did it did it kind of affect how you saw the album, I suppose? Um, no, it probably... No, not really, because, you know, it's already made its mark, it's been in, it's, you know, it's... You know, so this is, say, I don't know, 15 years later after first hearing it and being a staple diet and just as a songwriter, uh, never never set out to write like Arthur mm. uh, personally because you couldn't. Um, but I think possibly, I know I use it a lot. I've started having to use it at the back of my mind because people, but subconsciously, maybe... Um, you know, my songs are kind of crafted in a way, but it didn't make me look at Forever Changes any differently after I'd met him or, mm. or any of his songs. You know, if anything, as a, as a human being, as a man, you just got to take your hat off to him, just walking around Liverpool, creating this beautiful work that will go on after we've gone, mate, won't it? Yeah, you know, absolutely. And... You know, with our, our grandkids, families, kids passed on, as it has yeah. been passed on, and we'll pass it on. And it stood the test of time. So what is it now? 2020. You know, 50 years. That's great yeah. music, isn't it? And still getting... Incredible. It's timeless. Yeah. Fucking timeless. In those, um, in those, I guess, 43 years since Yorkie first played you that record... Can you think of any other record that's had a comparable impact on you? A Kind of Blue mm-hmm. um, is in the top, within that frame of mind, where, which gets in there into your fabric and you can't do without it forever. It's in A Kind of Blue I always go back to and that really hit me when it got me and I just couldn't it, I couldn't 
but you would out it. Miles Davis's Kind of Blue, 1957, a classic. Mm. When did you when did you first hear that, Mick? Um about nineteen about nineteen like Paley's time, early Paley's. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Um I you know, started listening to a lot of um they used to call them the I don't know, they hated it, the impressionist, the Bussy and all that. And then started verging towards Miles and Gill. Um, a kind of blue sketches of Spain. Um, so it would have been 1981, 82. No, do you know what? It was after, no, it was after I'd moved to London from Liverpool. So it was while I was in London, say about 84. Okay. So I was experimenting after we'd done the second album from across, across the kitchen table. Um, you know, there was only so far you could do, go down nuggets and pebbles and psychedelia and and I, I personally I was getting more um, uh, looking into avant-garde musically you know Debussy Sanson um, Eric Satie the ones I was getting into say space and chords not not the chords yes that are standard chords you know ones where discords yeah which I found interesting, still do to this day. Um, one that, yeah. So, 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 um, about in the mid eighties, mate. Mm. So yeah, albums like that, kind of blue. Uh, Johnny Mitchell, yeah. Um, from both sides now is it uh, blue? In fact, it was blue. Blue, yeah. Uh, that when we, when it was in the Paleys, in um, in Ridge Farm, some girl got me onto. Joni Blue fell in love with her and Blue, you know. <laughs> uh, what, what a combo! Um, um, so, so, and that stuck with me. Back to your yeah. question, it's like albums that stick with you, isn't it? Yes. But not like forever changes. Whereas a songwriter just blew me away. But they all did as a songwriter. A kind of blue, blue, and forever changes. I think, yeah. That's a nice combination of records there. That's, yeah. it's, it's an, I mean, in a way, that's kind of enough to keep you going. And I guess that's kind of leads me on to like a, a, another question. I mean, can you, in terms of the records that you listen to, can you survive on just quite a small number of records as in like kind of, that's enough, that'll do me, you know, kind of, or, or are you a kind of a devourer of lots of music? No, the, the former. The, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Just uh, bits. So, yeah. yeah, I can do. I can do bits. Yeah, um, I haven't got a massive um, record collection. I haven't got Spotify. Recently, a friend said to me, "You can piggyback onto his Apple," which I was going, "What? You know, what's that?" <laughs> <laughs> and then he showed me, which was a game changer. So it was like, oh man, you know, boom, 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 boom. Um, so yeah. Uh, so no. I, I, um, yeah, I can get by on a diet of, you know, beauties. Yeah. Faithful beauties, you know. Yeah. What was the last thing you listened to, mate? Um, oh, wow. Horrible oh, question, sorry. Yeah, no, it, it's a beauty. Though. What was the last thing I listened to yesterday? Um, I, had, um, I had Porter's head on and then Johnny Mitchell. Last night, yeah. Um, we had um, in the van. We had uh, oh, they had some great when we were on tour. We had some great DJs in the van. Um, Portishead was on, which I hadn't heard the whole album. Um, was that Dummy, the first one? Yeah, Glory Box as well, and yeah, yeah. I hadn't heard a lot of the album. Greatest hits again, but. Um, we're going to do it. Uh, I've been learning the uh, Matt Monroe, you know, on days like these. Oh, yeah. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get one of the bands to sing the Italian bit at the beginning. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. Fucking, it's a fucking great song. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I think um, uh, the last thing was Portishead and Johnny Mitchell. 
That um, kind of, you know, Matt Monroe kind of Andy Williams kind of that's that's always been an element there as well, hasn't it? And you kind of listen to the early Paley stuff. There's kind of yeah. a massive influence from what people, you know, would probably call easy listening crooners and that kind of stuff. But yeah. that's always been there, hasn't it? Yeah. Well, when we signed to the label, Dave said to me um, over lunch, um, you know, there must have been a lot of um, classical and jazz and brass and who played trumpet in the family and things like that. And I said, no one. And it was a good question. And I thought, well, I don't know how old you are, but when I was growing up, you know, there was only Channel 4, wasn't there? There was BBC One, BBC Two, ITV, Granada. I remember we used to have the test card of music. And I grew up with the easy listening of the test card and music. And you'd have like, so I'm 16, 17, you'd have Sergio Mendes and everything kicking in. You'd have a bit of classical. You know, you'd have a lot of shit. <laughs> but you get a lot of Tijuana. Yeah. So I was, after the question and after lunch, I was thinking about it and I thought, yeah, being a sponge, you must have had all that fucking easy listening shit in your mind. <laughs> you know, the Tijuana. By the time I'm doing Paley's, I'm all bossing over up in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> so when I was thinking about it, I thought, yeah, yeah, things like that. Um, you know, I'm listening to um, the Buzzcocks, as I've said, magazine, The Teardrop Explodes, but still subconsciously an element of Tijuana and Sergio Mendes and Herb Halbert. <laughs> Mine can't watch that other fella, fucking old yeah. James Last. <laughs> But it's kind of, it's weird because, I mean, obviously we lost, um, I mean, you know, we lost Martin Duffy recently and kind of, you know, the sound that he brought to Felt was very similar, you know, kind of, you can yeah. again hear that kind of, you know, the, the easy listening, but also kind of, you know, the the Herb Alpert and everything, yeah. all those qualities kind of coming through in a number of really interesting 80s bands like yourself and Felt, yeah. you know. Well, that was Martin though, wasn't it? He was brilliant. Yeah. And his, his humour. And his, yeah. and his, you know, yeah. So, but there was a, a, a love of that, um, you know, obviously as we were growing up, it, that went into old old school. It was like brushed under the carpet to an extent. But I don't know, it, say with the Paley's, it was invaluable to us. Yeah, like, absolutely. Uh, and when we see an anti-diagram, diggers play with dislocation dance and we thought, Oh man, you've got to join the Paleys, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, so, um, and he brought all that with him, all yeah. that beautiful um, jazz edged bossing over, but he still had that punk mind set yeah. that he'd had when he moved from London to Manchester, I suppose, I think. Yeah. So he was on that Manchester industrial, hard factory scene in a way as well. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, this. Thanks for having us on. You know, you know. Oh no, it's, it's I don't know who to, Yeah, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> no, thank, thank you, you know, Mick. It's, it's been, a it's, big thing, really. Album of the year. Let's have it. Do you know, it's a, it's a fucking. Big, someone <laughs> said to me, all them fucking albums, and I, when I, I thought about it, I thought, yeah, and that's why I go back to all, all the input. You know, um, it was, it was, and we're, we're going to do another one. You know, the same. Yeah, great. the same format. Because it comes through, it comes through that thing you were talking about, the collective and that kind of communal feel, which you kind of were saying is essential. Yeah, the man. good thing about it is it comes through in the sound of the record as well. I you know, there's a there's a warmth there that kind of is, it feels really honest. Definitely, definitely. There's one thing you should know, Mick, is I just got the uh, spreadsheet sheet spreadsheet um, the spreadsheet up of the uh, voting for the albums of the year there's like 50 odd people voted for it across the, the magazine and um and everyone got like got to choose 20 records and then we added it all up and there were 398 different albums voted for so yeah. you came top out of 398 basically that's amazing man do you know what i mean that's fucking incredible it's, um, so it's, you did okay. You did yeah. fucking, do you know what I mean? It's like, it's, but you know, and I, I will say that it, it's, it's a boss album though, isn't it? It's a really it's great, you know, yeah. Of course, fucking, yeah. You know, it's, it's, um, I, uh, yeah, it's, it's, 
looking really proud of it. And what what I really hope as well is because Mojo's got a lot of readers outside of the UK as well, and hopefully a few people listening to this outside of the UK as well who maybe aren't as familiar with your stuff. And what I really hope is that it's going to turn people on to, because there's a lot of wonderful records to discover over the yeah. past 40 years that they can find that, you know, I think in many in many cases are every bit an equal, the equal of yeah. this, Scott. Yeah, I was um, went back and listened to um, went back and listened to Miles and Gill, which I kind of feel is an album that kind of disappeared a yeah, little bit. Yeah. And what a what a great underrated album that is! That's amazing, gorgeous record. That I mean, and if you're thinking not to put ideas in your head, Mick, of yeah. maybe reissuing some of these records, yeah, yeah. you know, then um, I think that would be amazing. I think people would jump on the chance to get some of those harder to find records. Here's Tom with the weather as well. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. both of those. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. No, it's, you know, um, definitely. I, I, um, I, I agree. Things like this that it's a good way to um, to get it out there. That's what it's about, isn't it? Trying yeah, to, get, I say, trying to get the music yeah. out to as many people as possible. You know, um, you know, it, it. When we were younger, it was we were on indie labels. Um, which was that, that's the way it was that was our ethos but I always wanted to get it the music out to as many people as possible you know and that what you're saying there there's like with there's Tom of the Weather Miles and Gill I haven't heard Miles and Gill for a long time um, so that yeah. is a, it stands up really well it's yeah. a great record yeah I'm gonna uh, to dig it out man yeah Nick Thank you so much, oh, firstly, for making the best album of 2022, oh, and secondly, for being our first guest of 2023. It's been absolute joy. It's been a delight mm-hmm. to have you on. Thank you. Nice one, mate. After that, I think there's no better track to lead out on and um, bid Mick farewell than on Days Like These, sung by Matt Monroe, written by Don Black and Quincy Jones, and as featured on the soundtrack to the classic British 1969 caper movie, The Italian Job, available on EMI Universal Records. It's on days like these that I remember Singing songs and drinking wine While your eyes play games with mine I wonder what became of you. Okay, I'm Nick Ed from the Red Lasted Band, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club. And fucking joy. John, for a bit of a change of pace after Matt Monroe, what album have you been listening to this week? Yeah, I'm not sure that the phrase and now for something completely different has ever been quite so relevant. Um, I almost feel slightly uh, grubby, soiling the kind of resonances created by Mick and Matt. But um, uh, not many records normally come out at the start of the new year, but there's a big one this week to kick off 2023, and it's the latest solo album by Gee Pop. It's called Every Loser, so you can probably get a gist from that title what what kind of vibe we're we're entering here iggy solo albums in recent years have tended to sort of swing between heavy rock stuff punk stuff and more reflective sets where this where iggy the indestructible godfather of punk shows his poetic side confronts mortality that sort of thing every loser is mostly one of the noisy unrepentant records though and there's even um I'm laughing just thinking about this song. Never mind playing it. There's even a really dumb song called Neo Punk, which is basically you kids are doing it all wrong these days. You know, you're not proper punks, which is uh, terribly sweet. But anyway, the the difference this time is that it's also one of those Iggy records where someone thinks they can make a mainstream star out of him. So obviously Bowie did that to a pretty spectacular effect in the 1970s. This time it's not it's not someone quite like Bowie. It's a guy called Andrew Watt who's produced Ozzy Osbourne and Eddie Vedder and, and Blink-182, actually, as well, I discovered this morning, which is an interesting neo-punk antecedent for him. Um, but maybe he's better known for producing people like Justin Bieber and Miley Cyrus and probably about half the things on the radio that, or 
or on Spotify that you hear when you're in a shop or something like that. Big pop producer, basically. What um what Andrew Watts tried to do here, I think, is make a big stupid Iggy record that's precision tool for Spotify playlists right now. And he's also to do it, he's got a lot of Red Hot Chili Peppers and Guns N' Roses alumni in there to play on it. And um, I'm looking at Sue's, our producer's face, and I realise I'm probably not selling this record terribly well at this point. Um, but I suppose the key thing for me here, really, is that my favourite Iggy is often the dumbest Iggy. So I'll always, I'll always revert to the first two Stooges albums over anything that he did after that, personally. And I guess every loser in in a phenomenally crude, but at the same time quite ostentatiously twenty twenty three kind of way, scratches that itch. We're going to play and, something, aren't we? Yeah, we should hear a little bit of it. This is the grimy, low slung noir tale of Strung Out Johnny, written by Iggy Pop, Andrew Watt, Chad Smith, and Josh Klinghoffer, and it's from the new Iggy album, Every Loser, released on Atlantic Gold Tooth Records. John, I'm someone who owns those two first two Stooges albums and I've got a copy of The Idiot and I haven't really kept abreast of Iggy Pop's output. Probably, I was looking, I realised it's these past 20 years. And I was going to say, is this a good place to dive back in? But I think the point is that almost Iggy albums kind of, they're sustained by his myth, aren't they? I mean, this clearly listening to this album... This is an album that is built on the Iggy myth. It's people trying to recapture the kind of sleazy Iggy myth, you know, and kind of a, a, and just reinvest some life into it, isn't it? The, I think I think it's important to note that Iggy Pop is a man spectacularly unafraid of self-parody, and, and, yeah. and that he actively embraces it. He's probably been embracing it for upwards of fifty years, really, from 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 the prime movers onwards. In some way, he's you know he's never afraid to look ridiculous um but and i kind of prefer that than than the records where he tries to look pensive and that kind of thing i'm not Mm. not saying that uh he's not entitled to show a more sophisticated side because he's a very bright man but i just think he's better at making crude records basically yeah um and i think we you know kind of we were we were talking a little bit um off air about seeing him in the 90s with kind of quite frankly one of the the worst pickup bands ever you know i mean he kind of was very good at kind of touring and playing with uh, truly well, trashy and crude musicians well that, that that's one consistent here again in that he he draw <laughs> he's kind of i think i think there's a, there's been a, a regular pattern of trying to monetize unsellable punk by him yeah by trying to get um what he sees as kind of heavy rock, LA heavy rock musicians who in some way are analogous, in some very distant way, analogous to the spirit of the Stooges. And he's done that so frequently. So he's made some really quite poor heavy rock from neo, near heavy metal records. But I mean, I don't know whether there is a good good place to come in in, in his recent catalogue. I mean, a lot of people make claims for the record he made with Josh Harmon, Queens of the Stone Age, which I'm, it's nice, but I'm not quite so. Yeah, I, I tried with that. And to be absolutely frank, I'm with you. I prefer this. I prefer, I prefer in my, you know, not in kind of capitals, The Idiot Iggy. You yeah. Know, I kind of, well, I, I like both versions. I like the album, The Idiot, but I also like Iggy the Idiot. And I think kind of having seen him live as well, you realize that that kind of, you know, gonzoid kind of goonishness is his life force it's what he feeds off yeah. and when you and it's very striking because i i met i met him at coachella i got I had to inter, introduce jack white to him and it's very obvious when you see iggy come off stage how much smaller yeah literally and kind of you know kind of metaphorically 
symbolically he seems once that kind of goonish life force isn't surging through him you know he kind of yeah and so it's like it's almost like these albums need to keep he needs to feed on this idiocy to keep going to sustain himself yeah i think um one one thing i would recommend that's worth digging out is but it we, we were talking about the last 20 years and I've just looked at the release date of this record and it was November 2023, so I barely made the cut, but that's... Uh, um, there, was a, there was some quite interesting Stooges reunions, especially live, and there was a slightly disappointing album that they made together. But actually, the reunion was started by a record in 2003 called Skullring. Now, yeah. um, I would in no way recommend all of this album because there's a, there's a bunch of it with some 41 and green day and people like that backing him. And, um, uh, I would politely say that's not for me, but there are about four tracks with, um, the Stooges on it, including a track called the little electric chair and the title track that I do think are pretty good actually. And they, they're co-writes with the Ashton brothers and, and yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's not, it's not complicated stuff, but it's done. It's recorded. Maybe a bunch of this stuff is like what we're dealing with, with, with uh, a lot of artists of his age in that sometimes production decisions are not, don't play to an artist's strengths. And, yeah. um, and some of this record does, I think, but not yeah. all of it. I will listen to those four tracks. I will hive them off. I will call them the Skull Ring EP. Perfect. And I will um, and I will kind of in, enjoy them hugely. I now, may, maybe, my, maybe I should revisit it before we do that, actually. My album of the week is something of a contrast. It's Jeff Parker's Mondays at the Enfield Tennis Academy on Eremite Records. And it feels odd recommending a record that is currently sold out on CD and vinyl throughout the UK and might continue to be so because it came out in sort of in limited editions in terms of its kind of actual hard copies. But you can still get it on the Bandcamp website and you can download it. And to be absolutely honest, listening to it because it's it's it came out as four sides of vinyl, two CDs, and it's kind of it's basically kind of four ultra long tracks and listening to it um as a continuous play download is the best way to hear it um parker's perhaps best known as the guitarist with um chicago post rockers tortoise he was also the founding member of isotope 217 <coughs> sorry i'm going to say that again parker is perhaps best known as the guitarist with chicago post rockers tortoise and he was the founding member of isotope 217 but a heart he is a jazz guitarist, and I think this is one of the loveliest examples of his kind of jazz group work. He's playing with a drummer, bassist, alto saxophonist, and it's kind of four hypnotic sidelong exercises. In it's really, and it's kind of hard to describe a kind of strange, graceful, live in the room jazz, but jazz that also references hip hop, psychedelia, modern ambient music, funk. You can also hear this kind of like 808 rhythms there in the drumming, this drone. I mean, it's maybe a good example just to play a little extract. This is from um, Side 4, and it's probably one of the nicest places I've visited musically in the past few months. It's kind of going back to um, Mick Head's references. It's kind of There's a bit of Creed Taylor cocktail jazz in there, but it's also kind of coming into sort of mellow cosmic rhythms and off into endless beautiful tributaries this is the each track is named after the date of its recording so this is 2009-07-08 part two 2019 thank you each track is named after the date of when it was recorded this is 2019-07-08 part two composed by anna butters jay bella rose jeff parker and josh johnson from jeff parker's monday at the enfield tennis academy on Eremite Records. It's a 
shame we have to cut that off, really. I'd, I'd like that to keep going for a while longer. I think we, I think we should say, Andrew, that there aren't that many records coming out this week, and so we've we've gone back to one that we both love from from a month or so back because this has. Oh, been all right, then. All right, then. Fair, fair cop, yeah. fair cop. It, it's been a it bit. Didn't it's, come it's a stitch up in it. Let's face yeah, it. Yeah, it is. Um, but it's a beautiful stitch up because completely. isn't that just a gorgeous piece of gorgeous piece of music and a gorgeous record? It is. It's um. I've played this record a hell of a lot and, I, and I'm actually to the point now where I'm slightly wary of playing it because I think it lulls me into a bit of a fugue state actually and and I initially thought that this is one of those perfect records to actually work to because it has that kind of, it has that lulling sort of crypto ambience but at the same time it, it, it's got forward momentum as well so you can keep working through it. Um, but actually it, it it sends me off somewhere sometimes. And I, I, I remember I played it in its entirety in the Mojo office a few weeks ago and, and, and the office became unusually quiet and also, and also the, um, most of, most of our neighbors weren't there. So we could play it slightly louder than we normally play music. And I think hardly anyone spoke for the best part of two hours or whatever. And, and I felt slightly destabilized when I stood up to, to, to sort of switch it off. It, it, it's a very magical record. It's like, um, I do love the label. It's on Aramite records as well. And if people have come across the natural information society records that Mike releases on that label, then it has a similar kind of, long form effect i think but it's also you know jeff parker is one of those secret heroes of music i think and he made yeah, a great absolutely. solo record that came out a year ago called four folks which i think it would be remiss of us not to mention in this one of well. one of my albums one of my right. albums of the year if we're talking about albums yeah. of the year yeah but also it's also there's so much kind of crazy stuff going on on this record in a very subtle way in that you know what, what you're talking about there's I lose track of time as I've just tried to indicate when I'm listening to it. So I couldn't tell you which track it's in, but there's this kind of uh, bass and drums breakdown in the middle of it. Mm. That sounds like a kind of Madlib record or something like that. And, yeah. then, and then you discover that Jay Bellrose, who's the guy playing these breaks is actually predominantly like a country drummer and actually is the drummer on the Robert Plant and Alison Krauss records and on a lot of um, uh, T-Bone Burnett productions and that kind of thing. So it's this, it's got this. It's got a real kind of West Coast vibe to it as well. I mean, yeah, um, Parker. That's why it's got that kind of the drumming has. You say Madlib, but obviously Madlib is is kind of going back and you know the samples are right. from kind of Wrecking Crew and session musicians, and it has that quality. It has the it has that quality of those guys, those drummers who can basically turn their hand to anything. Right. And if you any you know, and if you want them to, they can kind of you know knock you on your ass with some sort of funk break or something right exactly there was a, yeah um one of the things that was in the press release that came with the record was um allusions to the birds especially to kind of clarence white era birds and i was like i don't get this at all um, uh, but then the more i listened to it i kind of do get it and not so much the birds so much but a certain kind of west coast aesthetic it's interesting yeah. because it's, it's a chicago musician relocated to la to and and it and it and there is something slightly intangible about it feeling like an LA record rather than a Chicago record, if that makes sense. Maybe it does. It feels rooted in Chicago post rock and post and Chicago jazz, but taking on the kind of the accoutrements and just that slightly more laid back vibe of, of LA. LA at its, its best. It's very, yeah, kind of, um, if I could only remember my name, LA, you know, sort of David, David Crosby. It has that quality of, I think it's rare to find those albums where, as you say, you lose yourself in it, you lose time, you lose a sense of space, they kind of dislocate and you can kind of escape inside them. And this album is long enough to do that. And if you can set it up um, to stream for, you know, almost how long? I mean, is it over? Two, it's over two hours. I can't remember. They're about twenty-five minutes each, aren't they, or something like yeah. that? Yeah. Piece. I can't it's so, a good size of vinyl. Yeah. Um, if you can set it up to play all the way through, you can. Um, and you'd basically want to completely lose a day to <laughs> transcendental you, you really, music. You really do. Thing. It's one that it, there's something very pleasing about records where not that much appears to be happening until you realise that an incredible amount is happening. Yeah. 
Per perfectly put, John, perfectly put. Okay, I think that's an ideal place to end. You have been listening to Mick Head, John Mulvey, and myself, Andrew Mayle. That was the Mojo Record Club. Please look inside the episode description for full details of all the tracks we played and how to sign up for the next one. You can all join in. Thank you for listening to the Mojo Record Club. This is Michael Head from the Red Elastic Band. Happy New Year. Get in the swing now. This is Michael Head from News at 10. All the best. Do the papers. <laughs>